thank you for your word and for your uh, time that you've given us tonight. God, that you love us, that you're kind to us, that you give us all things that we need in and through your son, Jesus. We pray you be glorified tonight and we receive him with faith. In his name we pray. Amen. Cool. Uh, well, y'all, uh, welcome. Welcome back to RUF. My name is Simon Stokes. I'm the RUF campus minister here. And if you don't know anything about RUF or if this is your first time, uh, I just want to say I'd love to meet you, to know you in some way, in whatever way I can. Uh, we're a community of people on this campus who want to know Jesus, want to be known by Jesus, want to know each other in that relationship. So if you think that might be cool, we'd love to have you or at least get to know you in some way. Um, so this semester we're going through the book of Hebrews. Last semester we, went, we did dating, relationships, marriage. We kind of jumped around through the Bible a little bit for that. Uh, but that's not normally what I do. Normally I just take a book of the Bible and I just march through it. And so that's what we're doing this semester. And we had Hebrews 1 here. And as we start off... I want to start off with this. Is that I want to suggest something to you tonight. That consciously or unconsciously, that you live in a story. That stories are the ways in which we make sense of our lives. I mean, think about UNC and how central the story of this university is to our state. That it's been a part of North Carolina since the Continental Congress created it. And when people fight over the names of buildings or days to celebrate or people to honor or dishonor or remember or forget... What they're fighting over is the story of this place, of this campus, of this school. What's central to that story, to y'all, and to the wider state at large. Y'all's story is a huge deal. A huge deal. All of us live in story. And you probably don't often think about it, but you are the main character of a movie of what your life is about. And in a similar way, the Bible is telling a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's a story that's going someplace. It's going someplace. So tonight I want to focus on two really basic things, and it's this. I want to look at the story, and the fact that we all live in a story. I want to look at the storyteller, and what is the central story and storyteller of the Bible. So first, the story. Look at verses 1 and 2 here. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by a Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. What's the writer doing there? He's telling a story. He's saying, long ago, a beginning, God did this. He spoke to us by the fa- by the, to our fathers by the prophets. But now, as we've gotten to the end of the story, in these last days, He's spoken to us by someone new, by the Son. Right? There's a story there. And what He's doing is He's helping these Jewish Christians, the Hebrews, of whom this book is named after, who are considering returning to Judaism because of persecution. And He's doing so by asking them the question, what story do you live in? What story do you live in? Because it's only when you know the story that you live in can you figure out the roles that you are to play in that story. Are you a hero? Are you a villain? Are you a minor character? A major character? I mean, trust me, when you're calling someone to risk losing everything like this writer is doing, your job, your possessions, your social standing, your life, you'd better have a pretty daggum good story to justify that, right? Our hearts just swim in stories. Not only are we made for relationships like we talked about last semester, but we're made for stories. To tell them, to listen to them. The novelist David Foster Wallace once put it like this. He said that we need narrative stories like we need space-time. Ooh, heady, space-time. It's a built-in thing. In the same way, what he's saying there is the same way that you can't imagine your life without the concept of space and time. Hours, minutes, days, years, seasons. And you can't imagine what the concept of space, left, right, up, down, that you can't imagine your life apart from a story. 
and it's especially a part of a story that's bigger than you. They're just the dye in which the wool of our life is colored in. A guy named Dan McAdams wrote a book called The Stories We Live By, and he said that in childhood we develop a narrative tone which influences our stories for the rest of our lives. Are you an optimist? Is everything that you're, that's coming down the tracks, is that just going to work out and be okay? Are you a pessimist? Or are you just constantly waiting for the next shoe to drop? How did you learn that? Something in your childhood, something in your story. The roles you had in your family came about because of your story. Whether you were the golden child who could do no wrong, and it's inevitable that you'd end up in a place like Carolina, because how could you not get into so great a school like this one? Especially when your no-good sister got into app, right? Is that you? No, I'm joking. I love app. Or, <laughs> or are you the black sheep who could do no right? And it's inevitable that you would end up in a place like Carolina because no way could you make it to an Ivy League like your sister got into Yale, right? You had a role. You had a part to play in your family. And how you see your story is part of that family story, part of your role. If I were to ask you what your story is, what would you say? What would you say it is? Is it a tragedy? Some of y'all have super, super sad stories. And it's one of the great privileges of my life to get to sit with you and hear those stories and be sad with you in that and pray with you in that. Is your story a drama with highs and lows? I mean, are you up and down, up and down like a ship in a sea? Are you a comedy where you're just kind of bumping through life and laughing as you go that everything's kind of work out? It's going to be fun? Regardless, you're wrapped up in a web of story and how you understand that story and your part in it creates the lens through which you see the world and you start to act. We all know this, right? This uh, Christmas break, Katie and I were watching Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And I dare you, I double-dog dare you not to tear up whenever Harry goes into the woods to meet Voldemort and die for his friends. Like, he knows he's going out there. He knows he's going to die. Like, try not to tear up in that. That's not just because it's beautiful to watch Harry sacrifice himself for his friends and people he loves. But your tears come because there's a core part of your heart that deeply longs to give your life to the people that you love. It's sad and it makes your heart sing. Only a good story can do that. And watching that story and stories like it helps us understand our own story and the longings that are shaped by living into that story. You see, God is not just the creator of life, but he's also the author. And that means that just like the author of a novel, he writes each person's life to reveal something of his great story. There's never has been and never will be another life like yours. Your story is unique like fingerprints. And that means that neither your story or my story are just random, chaotic, just doesn't have any meaning. What that means is that it's a divinely orchestrated meeting of you being here tonight to hear and be a part of the story that God is telling through Jesus. Wherever you fall on the vast spectrum of belief and believing, it is vast. Your being here tonight is not random. It has a purpose. In the first chapters of the Bible, as God tells the story of the world, it starts off, and it's already a picture of the gospel. Somebody pointed this out to me recently. It's already a picture of the gospel. You've got God approaching darkness and formlessness and chaos, and he speaks beauty and light and truth and creation into it. Two chapters later, you have the fall where mankind is driven from the presence of God because 
They're broken. They've messed up the world. They're sinful and they've got a holy God. And yet he vows, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to fix this and make it right. And almost the entire rest of the story is God solving that problem that comes out in Genesis 3 of sin. Right? He takes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. He makes them a nation. He takes that nation, puts them into a land. Takes that land and from it comes the Messiah. Everything in the Old Testament points towards this person. Everything in the New Testament points back towards him. And in the end, in Revelation, you have the consummation. Where God and his people are finally back together again. And there's no more tears. No more sin. You know, the Bible begins in a garden with the marriage between a man and a woman. And it ends in Revelation in a city that's a garden. Or maybe a garden that's a city. It's hard to tell. But it ends with the marriage not of man and of woman, but of humanity and of God. That's a story that goes somewhere. That's a story that you can live in and love. All right, how many of us have ever read the Bible and, as kind of penance? Like, I messed up again. So I'd better go do my penance and like read Leviticus. One of the really hard books, right? Ugh, okay, I'll do it, right? Or I've really screwed up again and I'm not worthy to read the Bible. God doesn't want me touching his things. Have you ever done that? I have. Y'all, that's such an upside down way of thinking about this book. The Christian ought to want to read the Bible not to make God happy with them. Instead, they ought to read the Bible because they want to experience the power and the presence and the wisdom of God. Not to make him happy with me, because it's already accomplished through the cross, but to make me happy with Him. To help me find myself in the story that God's telling the world, which points to Jesus. Y'all, you can only feel anxious and read, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, so many times. You can only do that so many times. You need the end of the story. That one day, King Jesus is going to come, and He's going to step in, and He's going to crush the things that make you feel anxious. And He's going to remake us in such a way that it will be impossible to feel anxious about stuff again. Y'all, I know this whole idea of story might sound a little out there or, you know, it's a big concept. But trust me, when you start to see life in terms of story, you will not be able to stop. Everybody is doing this all the time. And that takes me to my second point. Every story worth telling has two main things. It's got a plot. Where is it going? We just talked about that. And it's got a protagonist, the person who's advancing the story and that story is about. Look at verse 3 here. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. You know, I'm not a betting man. I haven't bought a lottery ticket this week, uh, though people keep telling me I should. I think my chances are just so slim. No way. But I would, even though I'm not a betting man, I would make a wager that all of us at some point in our lives have started a sentence by saying, well, I just kind of think that God is like, and fill in the blank. I'm not basing this on anything other than, you know, kind of my gut. But whatever my official theology is, this is what my real on the inside theology is. And we've all heard people say that. And that begs the question, how do you know what God is like? How do you know? What does it say here? That Jesus is the exact imprint of God's glory. What does that mean? Well, the verb for imprint there is the same as to engrave. It's a picture of a, you know, like in the old days, a king had kind of a ring with his stamp on it. And he would pour wax onto a letter and he'd stamp the wax with that ring. And while it's still wet, it makes an imprint. He's saying that all that God is is that seal and the stamp Jesus is the perfect imprint of who he is and what he's like. And what's that wax? It's his humanity. Y'all, for human beings with finite thoughts and feelings and capabilities who want to know what God is like and have some, some sort of survivable experience with that, 
You've got to approach it through Jesus. And he's not kind of what God is like or somewhat what God is like. He's exactly what he's like. And that is something that the scriptures love to talk about. In John chapter 14, you've got Jesus hanging out with his disciples on the night he's about to be arrested. And he's just kind of, he's eating dinner with them. He's saying kind of last things to them. And he says, you know, I'm going to leave and you know the way. You can follow me. And Thomas, the one he's called Downing Thomas a lot of times, which is amazing that he's one of Jesus' disciples and Jesus has space for his questions. Thomas just kind of throws in. He says, Lord, no, we don't. We don't know where you're going. How can we go? And Jesus looks at him and says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And you can almost picture some of the apostles saying, have you seen God? Like when I went on on that falafel run, was there like a God sighting that I, I missed out on? Like, was he here? And I, crap. Because uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that I've seen him. And another apostle named Philip sort of chimes in. And he says, show us the Father. And that would be enough. And Jesus' response is unbelievable. He says, have I been with you all this time and you don't know who I am, Philip? If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. That is exactly what Hebrews is saying here. That when you're dealing with the person and work of Jesus, you're not just dealing with the most obedient man ever or the person who exhibited the most sacrificial love in the history of humankind. You're seeing the very nature and character of the living God. And I say all that because I want you to think about this. Think about how much that can help people like us. How much can that help us? Some of y'all have really hard stories full of tragedy and loss and death, and you wonder... Does God really care about that? What does God think about that? And I'm going to try and I'm going to play by the parameters here. And if that means the Bible is like authoritative, and it tells me that God controls everything. But I'm looking at this footage of refugees flooding into Europe, or ISIS committing these horrible atrocities, or my life. And I would just like to know what God thinks about that. Because I see all these footage of people weeping and I've been devastated. How does God think about that? And then you read something in the Gospels where Jesus comes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And he knows, I mean, he knows that in about five minutes, I'm going to raise this guy from the dead. And there is going to be the biggest celebration this town has ever seen. It's going to like blow people's minds. He knows that. But he stands there and he weeps. Why? Why? Why does he do that if he knows he's going to heal this thing? Because death is bitter, and his friend has died. And he's watching the effects of this on this community and on his friend's family. And he's feeling what people feel in tragedy. What are you seeing of God there? That God is not indifferent to your tragedy. And it's God's intent to one day undo tragedy. And how do you hold that waiting together? I would say in Jesus Again, look at John's Gospel. What's Jesus' first miracle? Does he take down the Roman Empire? Does he do battle with the forces of darkness? No. He's at this young couple's wedding. Nobody knows their name. They're totally obscure. It's not written down anywhere. They're just poor peasants. And they've run out of wine. And you could say, well, you know, in the grand scheme of things, who cares? I mean, it's not that big of a deal. These are just poor people that ran out of wine at a wedding. Jesus cares. Jesus cares. And he saves them embarrassment and he turns a whole bunch of just plain water into a whole bunch of very good wine and he sends their social capital through the roof. 
And John says in chapter 2 that he does that to manifest his glory so that you would know what God is like. That God cares about little things like that too. What does God think about poverty? Look at Jesus. What does God think about women? Look at Jesus. What does God think about the Bible? Look at Jesus. He quotes it all the time. What does God think about people who use religion for their own financial gain instead of to serve others? Look at Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 13 that there's a day coming when the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of his Father. Do you hate your body? Does it feel like your thoughts are consumed with how much you never feel lovely? Do you hate your health and you feel like you're consistently plagued by health problems even though you're like 20 years old and none of your friends' bodies have started to fall apart but yours has? Do you hate your sadness and you just feel like the dark dog of depression is just following you through campus and you just can't shake that? Jesus says that one day we will have exactly what he has and because he shines one day we will shine with all the vitality and health and laughter and love and loveliness of glory. That that is yours. Look, I don't know how you think or feel about God. Maybe you've never read the Bible. Maybe this is like your first sort of foray into Christian stuff or you're starting to dip a toe in the Bible. Maybe you're like uber familiar with this stuff and you know a lot more about the Bible than I do. I don't know. I don't know what a lot of y'all think about God. But do you know the refrain that's echoed through the very long story of the Bible? It says, I am going to be their God, and they are going to be my people. And he said this in many ways, and in many places, and many times to the prophets. I am going to be with them no matter what it takes. As the story unfolds, you hear that over and over and over again, and eventually what happens? It comes true. God does come. And he is with us, and he's not only with us, but he's dealing with the worst parts of reality. With death, disease, political, economic oppression, his friends betray him, his family rejects him. He's alone when he dies. He's feeling those things in his very person, and he's healing the people around him of those things. Until what? Until what? He's crucified. Why? Why would the one person who can do anything, know anything, and who's perfectly innocent... Die the death of a criminal. You hear him say it throughout his ministry. The law and the prophets must be fulfilled. Because this is how the story goes. And this is the part that he's written himself into. Because for the story to end well, and for all the sadness and darkness and evil of reality to be dealt with, he has to take the source of that evil, our sin, into his very person. And as a man pay to God something that only God has the resources to pay, Which sounds impossible, but if you're both man and God, then it is totally on the table. You know, that is the incarnation. And that is a story that the Bible is telling, which it leads up to. I don't know what you think about God. Whether you love Him, or hate Him, or are curious about Him, or are just totally indifferent to Him. I don't know. But I want you to hear this. That if He's going to become a person and die in my place to fix the ugliest darkest, most problematic part of my life, which I cannot fix myself, that he must really love me. And he must be really for people. And that, he never puts qualifications on that. You can be a really good person on the outside and a terrible person on the inside. You can be a terrible person on the outside and feel like a terrible person on the inside. 
And Jesus is for you. And Jesus is willing to give you everything that he has. And I want you to hear that. And so I'll end with this. There's a woman who lived about 100, 100 years ago, somewhere around there. Her name was Dorothy Sayers. She's a British writer, a brilliant woman. She's a scholar of modern classical languages. Uh, she's one of the first female graduates from Oxford. I can imagine that if you were to walk into her office, it'd be filled with like mahogany bookshelves and leather-bound books and have like eccentric curiosities all over the place. Like a really, really, really interesting lady. She's most famous for writing, though, a series of detective stories that's based around a guy named Lord Peter Whimsey. And these stories kind of go on and on and on and on. And after a while, there's this character that appears with Lord Peter Whimsey named Harriet Vane. And Harriet Vane happens to be one of the first female graduates from Oxford University. And she's a brilliant woman. And she's a writer who writes detective fiction. Hmm. And she falls in love with Peter Whimsey. And she marries him. And a lot of people, you don't have to be like an English major to figure this one out. A lot of people have observed (laughs) that as Dorothy Sayers wrote this character, having total control over his life, and wrote it all out, that she fell in love with this man. And then she wrote herself into that story. And at points that analogy breaks down. But do you know what the incarnation is? That the God who writes out every day of our lives is God. That he writes out our dilemmas, he writes out our confusion. And if that's all we had to have with him... I think that would be tough to love. But he wrote himself into our story to rescue us and to marry us. And y'all, that's the end of the Bible. He marries us and it says, now God dwells with his people. And when you believe in Jesus as your Savior, that's not just the happy ending of the universe. That's the happy ending of your life. And that's the beginning of your eternity. And what that means for you now and forever is what we're going to dive into this semester in Hebrews. Because that is a greater story and of greater value and of greater power than you or I could possibly imagine. And yet, if you're in Christ, it's yours. As always, that's my invitation to y'all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the truth and the grace of the story that it invites us into. That you've made the world that you've vowed to heal this mess that we've made of it, our brokenness, our sin. Lord, there's a part of us that just wants to do bad things. And you see that and you say, I'm not going to leave them to that. I'm going to heal that. I'm going to make them new. I'm going to wipe away their tears. Lord, would you be with us? Would you do that very thing in our hearts? Lord, we know that it's a long journey to get to the place where we're totally free of these things. And yet... Father, you've promised that in this life we will experience something of that. Would you give us this thing now in Jesus? Would you help us? Would you heal us? Would you move us more and more into your story with your Son? In his name we pray. Amen.